you know, obviously this is all from our life experiences. A wise man will learn from the mistake of others. The bosses in my previous organization, they didn't have their shit together, but I will learn from that and I will incorporate that in our organization. But, you know, the culture fit is very important as well. We actually tell this to our employees. We tell this when we hire people. That's what we tell them. We say, we want you to feel like you are your own company within our company, you know, like taking ultimate kind of responsibility and ownership for your work, do what needs to be done to get results. In return, we handsomely reward it. Today, I spoke with Rohan Khan, CEO and founder of Orange Tail, and Ari Georgiev, co-founder of Orange Tail. We talked about their early lives and how they got to working together from going to Bali and living together to starting a business. They also gave me some tips on how to scale a brand and their experience in that realm. It was really great to chat to both of them, and I hope that you enjoy this episode of the Debutify podcast. I'd like to ask you both, what was your lives like as a child? Did you guys have any privilege or did you have any negative experiences that shaped you and led you to who you are today? Excellent question. Okay. Do you want me to go first, Eric? Yeah, go ahead. I would like to think I became the person I am today due to my childhood and my circumstances. That is, you know, I had a very rough childhood in, in terms of very strict parents, uh, a father who was, you know, very strict on discipline and would often, you know, beat me. But, you know, I, I don't hold anything against him. In fact, I was a very troublesome kid. Um, I was a bit wild. And I think if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have had the level of um, character shape that I have now. We grew up poor. You know, that was another thing as well. You know, it's it's uh, it's often the ones that experience trauma or hard times that are the most resilient in life. And I use that word resilience because that is literally the one word that I attribute my success to. I would like to think I am more resilient than other people in terms of I'll stay longer, I'll you know work harder, it's a certain thing. I may not be as talented, may not be as smart. The resilience is what differentiates the A players from the B. And that was the key thing that actually led to my success. Like I failed quite often in my early entrepreneurial journey. I was you know working multiple uh, part-time jobs to fund this entrepreneurial life, you know, starting Shopify stores, failing, spending money on ads and then like not having any profitable ROAS. And then you're like, okay, back to square one. And then you try a new thing. But, you know, people give up after one, after two. I was like four goes. And then I still persisted at it until one took off. So my childhood was, you know, definitely rough. I think it's important for a man to shape his character that you have some kind of rough past because it grows, you know, it shapes your character, grows you into the person that you, you should be ultimately becoming. Yeah, they say you're not a man until you had a bad trip. Uh, and had your heart broken. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I totally agree with that. And what about yourself? Ed? Yeah, I would say I had like a generally, let's say in terms of existential stuff, it was nothing really crazy. I had like a pretty, pretty normal um, middle-class Canadian upbringing. I grew up in Canada. So we grew up in suburban Toronto. So pretty normal upbringing in that sense. Nothing like, you know, alcoholic fathers or, or the homes, like none of, none of that stuff. I would say like in high school, I don't want this to be like a sob story. I was like super quick, but in high school, I was, I was probably like, not the most popular kid. I was quite invisible. Uh, probably just like kind of hanging out with like the nerdy kids. Not that it's bad to be a nerd or whatever, but hanging out with the nerdy kids, even though I was not a nerd. Um, so I was like, I didn't even get the good grades, but I wasn't even getting invited to the parties and stuff. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess from that, that kind of pushed me to kind of go in more and just develop myself as a man, as a person, as I was growing up. So, you know, I started hitting the gym, kind of improving myself in terms of my, my communication skills. And that kind of just naturally transitioned into eventually into, into money, business and freedom, you know? So like kind of like a segue, I think if you go about it the right way and, and it's, it kind of segued into that for me. Um, so for example, when I started, um, you know, in university, I went to university in England, I had to do like a placement year. I like this typical oil and gas company, uh, in the marketing team. And it was so boring after like one week doing it. 
I was like, me and this other intern, we were just like looking at each other talking. We we're like, you know, what the, is this it? Like you go through your whole life, school, university, and then you just go here at the office and the, for the next 40 years, is this it? Like that's all there is to life, which is what you've been conditioned to doing your whole life. It's like, this is supposed to be the epitome of everything. And it's just like, I look around me and it was just like zombies and robots. Like everyone else was like a robot, all the other employees. They literally had this, like their, their their soul was sucked out of them. You know, I was like, no, this is not for me. And then from there, that kind of even spurred me even more to know. I, I got to figure this shit out with like, I got to be an entrepreneur. There's no other way. I literally cannot imagine my life living at like an existence of like a nine to five job. Um, I have to figure this this out to be like an entrepreneur and to have, because so, I could do just freedom. You know, I want, I want that freedom and to kind of just create a life that I want and not to be um, kind of like this little cog in the machine, which, you know, I think most people are I mean, not saying that's necessarily wrong. If somebody wants that, that's for them. Sure. It's just not for me. So yeah, I guess that's a quick summary. Can you both expand on, on those details a bit more? Like what, what, what did you study in England? And then also uh, yourself, Rohan, what, like, let's just progress through the careers and you don't sure. have to keep it too corporate and boring, but sure. Sure. I mean, let me just preface this by saying that uh, I think in most regards, modern education, unless you're going for like a STEM, like engineer or a doctor, or some one of those. I actually think modern education is pretty much useless. Um, I think in degrees like international business. So I studied international business at the University of Portsmouth. I think mm-hmm. it's pretty much useless uh, depending on what you want to do. Because in most times, you, you're just getting taught like some business stuff by some professor that in most cases never even had his own business, never really took the risk to start his own business. Not, you know, they're just literally regurgitating some textbooks to you. A guy somewhere made up some theory 40 years ago and now you got to regurgitate it on the exam. And then I think for the most part, it's quite useless depending on what you want to do. Yeah, let me just preface that with that. But yeah, I studied international business. I finished my bachelor's degree there. But then at that point, it was like, I already like checked out from like the possibility that I'm going to do like some nine to five normal job. I knew I would have, you know, I would have my own business. Uh, and then at that point, I was just trying different things. You know, like my first online business was actually like an online divorce service. So legit, really? yeah. <laughs> so in the UK, and like many people don't know this, but in the UK, if you want to get divorced, and it's an uncontested divorce, which means like both parties are in agreement. Uh, you actually don't need a lawyer. You literally just need to like sign some, you download some forms from the government side, you sign them and you send them to the court. That's it. So what I was offering is uh, this business would actually do that because it's like you got to fill out some forms. It's a bit like maybe some bit of complicated. We would do that for uh, for a client, for people, you know, so they would pay us, we'd do it for them. Um, and so what I did was I went on the site called People Per Hour. It's like a freelancer site. I just found this paralegal, right? And I told him, hey, I need you to, I'm going to have some clients. I need you to fill out these divorce uh, papers. Uh, I'm going to pay you 40 pounds for each uh, you know, case, right? So I did that. And then I made a little landing page. I tra- I put like the prices was like, like I think 90 pounds. And then I put like a little buy, buy now button, set up my Stripe account, launch some Google ads, and then driving traffic to the site, basically, and like I was saying, if you want to get divorced, buy this, we're going to handle all the paperwork for you. And this was before, like, now, you know, now we've had multiple businesses, we're scaling, we have more full-time employees and stuff. This was before everything. So I didn't know what to expect. So I launched the Google ads. I, like I said, I was not expecting anything, but then like maybe two hours after I get a notification on my, on my phone, I got an email. It says this and this person has just paid 89 pounds, your Stripe. And I was like, I, I literally, I remember the exact moment I was, I was in my kitchen in my flat in Berlin. I remember the exact moment. I, exa- exa- I remember exactly where I was. And it was just this amazing feeling of these like dopamine endorphins, like to my head. Cause it made it like more real. Holy shit. I just made an online sales. My first ever thing. So that was amazing. You know, that was like my first online business kind of thing. Um, so yeah. Accomplishment achievement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess that was um, kind of the first thing. And from there, it uh, went from there. 
yeah, it's um, yeah, I got a few more sales after that, but eventually, you know, it didn't really work out. But anyway, that was like kind of the transition, and then from there, I just tried to try different ideas. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. Um, just going back to what you were saying about university, I think you're you're right about the the STEM argument. Uh, I I did uh, creative technologies, which is basically just a computer science and philosophy. I didn't really learn any anything there that you couldn't get on YouTube. But the the one thing I think university does in an incredibly expensive way is just introduce you to people that you probably wouldn't otherwise have met. Whether or not we continue to use universities for the next 10 years, I don't really know. And I'm sure, yeah, many of the listeners have probably felt that that first dopamine Shopify buzz, which is uh, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, actually, just adding to what you said, Connor, um, there is a few other things I do think university um, you know exposes uh, young adults to, and uh, that's also the art of working hard, you know, because now you're independent in high school, mm. in primary school, everything is told, you know, you need to be directed like, Hey, you have to do this homework. Otherwise you're going to be in big trouble. You get detention. Once you get to university, you're on your own. You have to be independent. So you have to be an independent thinker. You have to, you know, organize yourselves. You have to set your own deadlines, uh, manage your workload uh, and take this from someone like I, I did a master's degree. I had a, a psychology bachelor and then I specialized in uh, organizational psychology in, in the Netherlands. So I did a master there. and. I do agree with Ari to an extent, like there are certain disciplines where like you absolutely need to go to university for those. And we need those people in society for to be become a you know well-rounded functioning society. We need the doctors, we need the lawyers, you know, we need the judges. So like, obviously there are certain disciplines that we cannot do without, but there's others like gender studies, like, you know, and some of the humanities, I'm just thinking, what is the actual point? And what will that degree do for you afterwards? So, you know, I would even go as far as saying it's a scam because they overpromise jobs and underdeliver on what's required. And the reason I'm an entrepreneur today is actually because I had an honors degree. I was the ambassador for master students in Maastricht in Netherlands. And even despite all that, my, you know, my extroverted personality, my great skills, I still couldn't get a job. I could not get like a, you know, a decent job. And then I had to settle for you know, business development or some kind of like low level jobs, which, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with those jobs, but if you have a master's degree and you are like, you know, high caliber individual who's capable, I mean, don't you think you should be able to get, you know, better jobs? So anyways, that was um, what I did after that was just work in this corporate environment. It's like the Wolf of Wall Street. We're in Amsterdam in the center near the canals, wearing three piece suits to the, to the office. Oh, and right, then, yeah. uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we like, we were walking around like feeling baller, but the environment was just toxic. You know, it's, it was literally hardcore Wolf of Wall Street. You had like a contract for 34, 38 hours per week, but you find yourself staying 60 hours per week. And if you find yourself leaving on time, they would guilt trip you and pressure you and laugh at you and say, oh, you're, you're, you're part-time. You know, so it was like that type of toxic, you know, dog-eat-dog environment, which I'm grateful for because it taught me a lot about sales. It taught me, you know, a, a lot of um, techniques, a lot of, you know, exposing me to high-level people. Like I was talking to CEOs, directors, and I always tell people this. I think there's four core pillars of entrepreneurship. It's sales, marketing, legal, and finance. And if you can just have a decent grasp of each of these four, you're a well-rounded entrepreneur. I've yet to meet someone who's like, you know, very good on all. Usually someone will have a vice, like mine is numbers. Like I, I don't like finances, but I'll hire the right people, you know, that, that can. Yeah, I think uh, college to an extent can, you know, have the capacity to teach you a lot about, you know, how to become a, 
a, a you know well-rounded individual, but only if you stay focused because you're independent. So it's very easy to stray into the partying side, into the girls because you're you know you're just living in a dorm or whatever. Um, so it does require a level of discipline, I would say. I think if you study gender studies, you probably learn empathy, which is a good uh, a good skill to have. But going into any any sort of field, whether it's tech or corporate or sales. I feel like you, you will have to confront those lessons in discipline. For example, when I was at university as a chef and, you know, it was like, oh, I'll just cook part-time, study part-time. And then you suddenly are doing 60, 70, 80 hours a week and the head chef's doing 110. So you can't really be like, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting shafted here. It's kind of like what you're describing in the Netherlands where you have this kind of weird employee socializing, you know, the, the gap between you and the employer where you're like, we're supposed to be a team, but then you all kind of hate and um, pull each other down. But I feel like that it's kind of a general point, like every, every adult in every field will probably experience that whether or whether or not they go to university. Yeah. And actually, I'm so grateful that I had that toxic environment in that work because now we really focus on culture in our uh, organization like we really focus on having like weekly board meetings where we you know ask people how the weekend was you know what's going well what's not going well we're quick to just solve any potential disputes and thankfully there isn't any but um you know obviously this is all from our like you know, from our background, from our life experiences. And we take a wise man will learn from the mistake of others, you know. So obviously the the bosses in my previous organization they didn't have their shit together. But I will learn from that and I will incorporate that in our organization. And Ari and I will constantly reflect, you know, we're adding new people. We're like we're aggressively scaling right now. We're hiring really fast. But you know, the culture fit is very important as well because happy employees are actually great, you know, more productive yeah. employees. Yeah. And just just to add on to that, and um, yeah, so there was a time, for example, where uh, you know, obviously we're still kind of a startup, right? So for example, our senior ops manager and another person as well, they were even just working a lot during the weekend as well, because they were just genuinely wanted to get stuff done. And although we appreciated it and we're like, guys, really thankful for, for this. Now, obviously it's really good because it's a good customer service to our clients. Just make sure you take some time for yourself. So we make sure to tell them, hey guys, you know, take some time for yourself, um, take a break. Because we do understand that um, if you just work way too much, you're going to burn out. You're going to start hating your job, your life, all that stuff. So we understand that. So we make sure you take a break. Uh, another thing is, I think the best way is, and this is, we, we actually tell this to our employees. We tell them, we tell this when we hire people. This is what we tell them. We say, we want you to feel like you are your own company within our company. You know, like taking ultimate kind of responsibility and ownership for your work. Um, this ultimately means that, you know, we're not there to baby you. We're not there to kind of hold you on a leash, you know, take responsibility for your work, do what needs to be done to get results. In return, we handsomely reward it. Like, for example, our operations manager, she only started like six months ago. We're already paying her double what we were paying six months when she started. You know, this is like very fast that we're, we're paying her more and more because she's proven herself. She's taking ownership. She's proven herself. She's adding more value. She's thinking like a business owner within our business, um, you know, really taking control and, and responsibility. Uh, and yeah, so we handsomely reward that. Uh, and also we give you that flexibility. You know, if somebody is just crushing it, they're taking ownership and they're like, hey guys, I want to take Wednesday off because I don't know, like my mom is coming. I want to show her around. We're like, cool, just make sure everything is sorted. Uh, and that, you know, whoever needs something from you, make sure like they have access to that or whatever. Yeah, we don't care. Just do it. You know, so I think freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. And we like to be on that end of the spectrum where they have responsibility, but they also have that freedom rather than the other end where we have to like baby them and leash them, uh, you know, hold them on a leash. But then, uh, you know, they don't have that flexibility. So, yeah, it's an incredibly simple point that I think a lot of businesses miss. I want to, you know, dive into that a bit more. How do you guys, you know, toe the line between giving people agency? I feel like, you know, the, the employee is closest to the problem. So they should have as much agency as possible to just like 
do what they think is is right. But then you have to balance like the overall brand's goals. How do you guys work that at Orange Trail? And I guess also uh, introduce Orange Trail as well. Basically, it's a combination. In the in the initial hiring process, we look for certain things, right? When we're when we're talking to them, first of all, we have a um, like a test task that they need to do, and they need to submit the test task within. Usually, we give like a very strong deadline, maybe like twenty four hours, maximum forty eight hours to the bigger test task. So first, we gauge: Does this person have a sense of urgency? And the responsibility to finish this test task before the deadline. So that's like one screening method. Later, when we're talking, of course, we we ask certain questions to understand, like in their previous role, um, how was the role, what kind of responsibility were they taking. So we screen all that in the hiring process, and then throughout, you know, the work in the weekly calls that we have with them in the basic communication, you know, we just make it clear, hey guys, like listen, use your brain. What do you think is the best thing to do here? Um, do that. You know, if um, if you have any feedback for us, let us know. We're always open to feedback. Uh, we just constantly reinforce that, you know, and um, maybe in the one-off occasion that somebody is, you know, let's say not taking responsibility for a decision. Let's say they ask us a question, which we think, hey, man, you are a person, hey, man or lady, you should be be able to answer that question yourself just by Googling this or by doing what is common sense. Maybe we'll call them out on that, right? But, but for the most part, because of that screening process that we have, because we just have this culture that we reinforce it, then they know that, okay, cool. Um, you know, I, I should be taking responsibility here. I'll make this, I'll take ownership of this decision. And it, it usually results in the best thing. Of course, maybe there's certain occasions where let's say somebody, we had one of our people call the client bro and we're like, Hey, uh, please don't call the client bro. Um, <laughs> like, well. like, there's certain things yeah. where we have to maybe, maybe, uh, you know, kind of offer some feedback. But yeah. then you that feedback and they adjust. So. What are you guys doing over at Orange Trail? And, you know, uh, what's the goal of your of your business? And also, how did you guys meet? So we met on Tinder, actually. And then um, <laughs> uh, we, we had a we were living in Bali for the last I, I was living there for like four years. But Aerie came, I think, around two years ago. And um, there was there was a poker night we had, which was, you know, just for fun, networking kind of. Uh, poker, which, you know, people around the table are all entrepreneurs and we just discuss business, um, you know, any problems anyone's having. And meanwhile, just having a fun game of poker. Um, and then Aerie, yeah, he came to our villa and, you know, we had a good chat. And at that time, I had two spaces in my my villa. So um, Aerie and another uh, individual were interested. And then from there, we started living together. And then we actually started one of our first businesses together, which was um, a, a premium luxury chess brand where, you know, we had these like huge boards that had like custom pieces, like the ancient Egyptian team pieces and stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that was like three or two years ago. And then from there, it's just... We always, you know, saw each other. Like he was hardest worker in the room. I always saw in the villa. He'd be staying later than everyone else, and I really appreciated that. And um, you know, I, I saw the value that he provides as well. And also, Ari just has, you know, this unrelenting work ethic and, and morals that are like just, you know, very clean. And I, I look for people like that in business because, you know, it's it's very important that someone might be um, very easily tainted by money. Okay, you know, like for example, I'm I'm blessed and lucky to to be in the situation where like I've you know scaled up multi-million dollar brands myself. But then like you might see a new individual who's in the industry like just a few months or something, and then he sees his first winning product and then it takes off or whatever. He can be very easily tainted. You know, you see him in Dubai the next week, you know, uh renting Lambos, and it's just like, okay, man, like you just did a you know, like a decent number, but you're not anywhere near that. And and Aerie was always very grounded. So 
from there, you know, we obviously saw each other's value and um, yeah, we just came up with Orange Trail. What does Orange Trail do? We actually sell oranges and clementines and um, fruit basket. <laughs> Again, awesome. yeah, exactly. More sarcasm, together. by the way. We're very sarcastic in Ireland, so bear with me, guys. That's no, good, it's good. <laughs> so Orange Trail, we are providing a whitelisted agency ad accounts to advertisers from Facebook, Google, TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter, Bing, and Taboola. What that means is everyone has a standard ad account. Okay, you go into your Facebook profile, go to the homepage, you have an ads manager, but they're standard profiles. There's another thing, which is kind of like a badly kept secret. It's called an agency ad account. These are premium whitelisted ad accounts that are like green status within Facebook. And they're direct from meta, uh, meta authorized sales partners. So these accounts, you know, they have numerous benefits, such as their low risk of ban. They don't get like easily banned or false positive banned. They have unlimited spend from the first day. So you don't have to do that warm up period of like five, 10, $20 a day. Probably one of the best benefits is that we have a direct line access to reps so that you can get an answer within 24 hours from someone at Meta that actually knows what they're talking about uh, and not an automated response that you might get from support if you're going to, you know, escalate yourself. And that will take usually a few weeks as well. There's a lot of other benefits. But in in a nutshell, the reason that we are scaling and providing the service in this industry is because we ourselves experience this pain where we get banned for even just the most white hat offer, totally compliant, and you get banned for no reason. So, you know, Elon Musk always says you get paid in proportion to the level of problems you solve. The bigger the problem, the more you get paid. I always say this, but it's it's true. And um, I tried to look at what is a huge problem in this industry. And I also looked at what is our network because, you know, Ari and I are very experienced and we have access to a lot of reps and high level connections. And we just connected the two. And, you know, we had to fly around to multiple countries, put pen to paper and really set this exclusive partnership up. So now we have contracts with ASPs from Meta, Google, TikTok, Snapchat, all the platforms. And we're one of handful of agencies worldwide that can actually provide these ad accounts to advertisers. We have over, I think, 300 clients now. And, uh, nice. you know, they they enjoy stability with advertising. You know, why wouldn't you want peace of mind? Because the other thing is, and we'll get into that as well, is that, okay, there's all these platforms, but Connor, how many of them do you think most businesses actually use for their stores? The average of an omni-channel, don't have the stats. Yeah, you're being very generous with omni-channel. There's usually just one and they only use Facebook. So what happens when that one channel goes down and your ad account, your BM, your page, whatever goes down, you have no visitors. You have no business because you're well, totally- most drop shipping businesses use Facebook, or most businesses in general. So I'm talking about digital. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, digital retail businesses. Um, let's say drop shipping and brand. Even some brands have not actually uh, dived deep into TikTok yet, or even Google yet. You know, we have some very large brands as well. They're seven figure brands, but they're heavily, heavily reliant on Facebook. They might have, mm-hmm. you know, dived into TikTok, but it might be like ten percent. I would say ninety percent is Facebook and Google. So if yeah. you get if you get issues of those two, which is so common, so many times, even on both of those platforms, you're totally doing everything totally white hat and normal, and then you just um, there's random blocks, you know. So ninety percent on Facebook and Google for sure. So yeah, just uh, the the whole point was to help advertisers in this space, and um, you know, having a huge network ourselves as well. Now we're an official partner for a lot of huge companies like Triple Whale, Georgia's. Uh, in the ad leaks, ad buyers, you know, you know the groups, uh, you know, we're an official partner because they saw the value we provide in the industry. Um, and yeah, you know, that's that's in a nutshell what Orange Trail does. Nice. Just a thought. Like, do you have any worries about Meta just noticing your business model and just you know adopting it? I feel like it could just offer agency accounts to more people, and then you you would be kind of 
Uh, no, so the thing is, this is an official Meta program. This is like we're we're not working against Meta; we're working with Meta. This is an official yeah. Meta program. Uh, the only reason this these agency accounts exist is because Meta wants more support in certain regions of the world, and we are one of those companies that offers this more support. Um, so we're working with Facebook. We're helping Facebook to reach more advertisers and to help more advertisers spend more money. So that actually ultimately Meta makes more money. The, the main reason they go through us is because when they go through us, they get the highest tier of support. You know, notoriously, the support on Facebook is so bad. There's so many people, they like we said, they get their fan oh, pages blocked, yeah. their profiles restricted, their ad accounts blocked, just random, you know, bullshit. And then they try to reach advertiser support and they get some random person on chat support from different part of the world which is giving copy-paste answers, right? And we are able to offer the highest tier support that a company which spends, let's say, $100 million, would, they will get that level of support. We are able to offer that level of support to just to everyone, pretty much, everyone that works with us, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So that's where they go through us. Sorry, I wasn't being clear. I mean, why is Meta going mm -hmm. through... Yeah, I got the... Guys, yeah. Yeah, so I think Eri saw it the other way, but um, let, let me clarify that. Meta has a, 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 like a list of authorized sales partners, okay? Now, these authorized sales partners, it's their job to find high potential uh, advertisers. So, you know, obviously Meta is Meta, this, this huge machine that's just functioning mm. and you're feeding it all the time. And there's like individual advertisers, small time that are maybe spending a couple hundred or a couple thousand per month. But the authorized sales partners, what they're doing is actively find, finding the high potential clients that could spend a lot more, you know? And of course, in the end, this whole machine is the one that's getting fed in all this advertising spend. And that's how, you know, these, these companies make money, right? So it's not like working against us or anything. It's more so that they have their platform and then they have the ASP program. And then through the ASP program, a lot of high potential advertisers come through and through the normal platform anyway, they're going to come through. So it's more so like they're just trying to like feed as much as they can on the ad spend. And what we're doing is actively uh, marketing to find those pockets of high potential um, advertisers. We're vetting them more importantly, because we don't accept any shady advertisers. We don't accept any black hat offers. Um, so we're vetting them as well. We have a compliance team. We have like uh, account managers in every single uh, time zone that you know are trained and well versed on you know identifying the the white kind of compliant businesses compared to something that might be a little bit off we're like actually no we can't work with you and you know that's kind of like we're an added layer of just screening and also an added layer of just marketing because we're actively trying to find new clients that are high potential to 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 advertise through us forgive me if i'm being pushy i just am trying to this is kind of the same question, but you know, I don't, I don't really see why Meta doesn't just advertise to that target audience of new high, high value. Let clients. me there a, a big part of it as well as as we touched up before, they simply just don't have the manpower to offer this level of support. That's mm, yeah, they do. They don't about. really. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, like so many times, if you're just going directly through them. You get some issue, you go to advertiser support and you get some random guy copy pasting answers to you, you know, from some country, other part, other side of the world. Um, they simply just don't have the manpower to be able to offer this support as well as we can. You know, So that's a, a very big reason. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So you guys are scaling up Orange Trail. Um, I'm interested in, you know, what that looks like. And you, you both have said, or maybe it was just you, Rohan, when you said that you sold your businesses, you know, can you just tell us why, why one would sell and why one would scale? 
So just just to be clear, the previous business was not the same as this. This is an agency, you know, it's a very exclusive and unique offer in the in the space. Uh, the previous business was an e-commerce brand because that was my bread and butter. That was my, you know, that was my historical first business as well. The reason, you know, and think about this logically, if you work so hard scaling up an offer, scaling up a, a website, you've had like a lot of sales, you've had, you know, email lists that are built up, customer data. Um, and you've built something which is a tangible asset. And then eventually you're like, okay, you know what? I'm getting good monthly profits, but what if I just sell this for 1x revenue? Or let me sell this for, you know, whatever multiple profit. That's the way I looked at it. And I feel like any business is like from the first day you launch towards, you know, the exit. I feel like you're always just gearing up for an exit if you know what it is and if you know how to sell. Because not every business is sellable. Like a lot of dropshipping businesses will not be, you know, sold simply because there's nothing tangible there. If you turn off the ads and one day, like there won't be any repeat customers. There's no like LTV. It might just be like one-time purchases. So it's not a very sustainable purchase for someone who's investing. But um, in my case, I had a brand which had 10 stores and one was English and nine were translated in multiple languages. And I actually infiltrated the unsaturated markets. So I had like Germany, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Spain, France. I did all the unsaturated markets. And what I did further was I, you know, not only like translated the stores, but I got the local payment processors, the local currencies. I got the domain also like .se for Sweden. And what that does is it actually improves your conversion rate because you look like a local business in that case, you know, it's the same brand, same worldwide brand, but you look like a local business and it inspires a lot more trust and confidence in your business. And therefore people are more likely to buy. English worldwide market was actually my least profitable one. And the most profitable was the German one, you know, so it's uh, also you need to look at the disposable income, you know, the, the high GDP countries are like Germany, Austria, uh, Switzerland. So like if you're targeting these with a translated website, of course, you're going to convert higher. Um, and in terms of just like exiting, I feel like anyone that is aware that you can actually get something for whatever you've built would be more than happy to, to you know, sell it and get like a nice cash cushion because then you can reinvest that into your future ventures so yeah that was that was pretty much that was my first exit and um you know from there i was like okay you know i have a cash cushion now what do i do i need to find something new and that's how we you know brainstormed how can we solve a problem offer value to people and at the same time be highly profitable and that's our trail. i mean right now we're at a point where we have a, a very good offer in the market uh we're scaling it hard uh in terms of uh, you know, always the clients, but also our um, our team. So right now we're in a scaling phase. Uh, I mean, potentially in the future we could sell, but we also could not because it's uh, it's, it's good for cash flow. Um, so right now, honestly, our, we just have tunnel vision. Our biggest focus just scaling it, just really you know continuing to like just take over the whole market in terms of uh, agency ad accounts. Um, and then in the future, you know, you never know. We'll uh, we'll talk in a year time or two years time about um, you know what would be the best option. Yeah, good luck. It sounds sounds like a lot of fun. So I know that uh, before we started recording, you guys wanted to talk about your NFT marketplace and um, Web3 marketing. So if one of you guys want to go maybe describe uh, what's going on. Around six months ago, because obviously we have these direct contracts, you know, with, with Twitter, ASPs and everything. So we were allow, uh, able to allow list and whitelist uh, ad accounts and, you know, campaign URLs which allowed us to advertise in certain verticals when others were not. For example, NFT crypto, it is a restricted vertical and you need special permissions and you know guidance to actually advertise in there. And mm-hmm. through our agency accounts and our connections, we were actually able to do that. So we identified you know, a, a gap in the market for someone who is number one offering these accounts, but also 
marketing using those accounts in those specific verticals. So as you know, Aries background is agency. He had that senior team of media buyers, the content team, the whole setup. Um, and all we had to do was just plug and play, you know, our existing or his existing team into our agency and basically start pivoting towards web three. So, you know, we've had a, a, a number of uh, NFT projects now that we've uh, marketed. We've sold out a few of them. And it is a different ballgame to, to, you know, e-com, D2C. It's not the same thing because it's not like a marriage on the first date, you know, trying to get a sale direct to the website. It's more so you have to run a lot of ads on different platforms and just nurture the audience into your Discord and try to get them to click and join the Discord. And then in the Discord, it's another, you know, whole different ballgame there as well. You have to have community managers. You have to have engaged, you know, a community, which is going to nurture those people joining in. They're going to tell about the project, what it's about. And then you're just like building up this Discord to like a large amount until finally lead up to the launch date. And then at launch date, you're just hoping that everyone in that community is going to mint at the same time. Um, sounds quite easy, but it's a very difficult uh, task to do because... First of all, you have to run ads in a very restricted vertical, which means that the type of content and creative that you're launching, it's different. It's not the same as, you know, oh, look at this, you know, shiny fidget spinner, buy this now. Um, you have to offer value in the creatives. And then aside from that, there's other strategies that we also implemented aside from just paid ads. So we have a collaboration strategy where we have a team of like 50 collab managers that are reaching out to other projects in the space or other communities, plugging and playing each other's communities and projects, and then exchanging whitelists, building up each of the communities. Um, we also, our head of influencers, Bobby, he is you know connected with anywhere from Alex Becker, Big Boy Crypto, all the way down to like hundreds of micro influencers. Or, so like it's it's a, it's not just one thing. Like we have developers, you know, there's all of these things in a Web3 space, which you have to master. And the lead up for a marketing launch is generally around two months, sometimes up to four. Um, so in that time, you have to market projects and then, you know, lead to to launch. Um, so that's something we pivoted towards as well, Web3, just because we were able to leverage our existing agency ad accounts to advertise in there. Let's imagine uh, Connor has a project, Connor's uh, cows, okay? And there's going to be 10,000 cows, all right? And then Connor has set a date for X, you know, two months from now where he's going to launch those NFTs on OpenSea and he's going to sell each of them for 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So between now and then, as we know what the end uh, goal is, to so sell out to 10,000 NFTs. So what do you have to do in that time? You have to build up your community. You have to get people in the Discord. You have to have a lot of different channels, you know, channels uh, with announcements about project overview. What is the utility? Do you have a utility for your 10,000 Connor cows? Maybe the utility is that you get a free glass of milk every month. I don't know. So I'm just thinking out loud here. So obviously you have to have a lot of different things that you're going to offer. And then you're going to have to market on multiple channels to get people into your Discord, nurture them during that time. So do regular like events, you know, people are going to be chatting in there. You just kind of create this like little, little ecosystem of Web3 DGENs because that's what they are. And then, you know, they're interacting with each other, asking questions about the project, and then the goal is for you and your community to convince them to, you know, obviously offer value. That's the most important thing. But then in doing so, in doing that, through your utility and your value offer, convince them to mint your NFT and then obviously then sell out the project. That's that's the goal. Yeah. So let me just um, quickly jump in there. I think that a lot of what is possible with NFTs is not understood by a majority of people. I agree that, you know, just buying a JPEG... <laughs> It's like, okay, wow, good job, JPEG. However, the first, you know, iteration and the use of NFTs at this point 
this is still very like we're still in the caveman days of what is possible you know um i think the big thing here is the underlying technology um, the big thing about nfts and nft technology this technology has never else existed in um in human history you know there's never been a time like that because it's basically you know a decentralized way for it's a decentralized way to have a key to get access to something you know in the times of the past and obviously even now for example it, say you put your money in the bank, let's say you buy a ticket to a concert, there's like a central entity that controls access to the money, to the concert, to whatever it is, you know, so if it's centralized, humans are humans, there's can be a certain degree of corruption or altering or or whatever, you know, uh, when it's decentralized, and it's fully transparent, that's when it's pretty much incorruptible, you know, so that is the underlying technology that is the big thing here, you know, right now it's JPEGs, yes, but in the future, this NFT technology is going to be used for so many more applications than just JPEG. It's going to be like, for example, you know, you buy a certain NFT, you get access to a certain, you know, certain events, certain type of restaurant, certain business opportunities, certain whatever, you know, thousands and thousands of people get really creative, you know? So the big thing here is the underlying technology of NFTs. So that's why we do believe that in the future, it will keep growing and growing and growing. The applications of it will keep growing. It will be a very uh, large and normal part of everyday life in the future. It just right now, okay, the first application is just JPEGs. Okay, it's kind of whatever, but it's the underlying technology that's key here. This first iteration of the use of NFTs for like JPEGs, it's still in the very like caveman days of what the NFTs use cases will be. You know, at the moment, okay, the first iteration of it is okay, let's make this project, let's have a bunch of JPEGs. In the beginning, it was just pictures. And then as that started getting more and more saturated and people started uh, attaching certain utilities to their projects and NFT. So now if you own this NFT, you get also get access to a certain utility and then extrapolating from that, there's going to be more and more and more and more utility. Yeah. And then, um, and then that's where the, the real value and real, you, you know, utility, like I said, again, I'm using the same word is going to come in, you know? So like I said, yeah, the first iteration was just JPEG, but it's going to build on itself over the coming months, years and so forth. Yeah, that's why you see a lot of big brands now diving into the space as well. Like Adidas have launched multiple. Uh, they've also partnered up with Board Apes as well. Um, they've launched multiple collections. Prada, uh, Gucci. Like, there's a lot of big, big names coming in now. Because this is the first time where you have digital authentication, digital contracts, uh, you know, to that extent. Um, you know, previously you had like Monet's and all these expensive, exclusive art pieces which you can have a certificate of, which is, you know, a physical product. But now for the first time, now you can have a solid way of having it as a digital authentication. So it is a game changer. I think it's still not like at the very core, an NFT should never have an image because it's actually just a contract. It's code on, on, on the blockchain. It should never have had an image, but they've started to add those images in there through, you know, softwares like Pinata Cloud. An NFT should never have had an image, but, you know, again, how do you market it if it's just some lines of code, you know? So it's, Again, it's, it's, it's a bit early, but anyone who's going to now invest their time, energy, and you know, money even into NFTs in this stage, in, in my opinion, as long as you choose the right ones, um, you're super early because you're, you're like in the early adoption say, phase. It's still not mass, mass market yet. You know? Yeah, uh, I think just a, a little point to add there is that, okay, one of the main things which we you know, um, think in terms of the value of it is, yeah, the utility and the build on of the utility as the time goes on. Uh, what you were saying as well in terms of, okay, 5 ETH for a JPEG, um, there is a, another part to this as well. So certain projects like, you know, Board Ape, for example, it's not just about the utility, not in those cases, more about status. It's like owning a Rolex, you know? So in those cases, it's just about flexing, you know? So, totally, uh, totally. That's, 
that's also that's a total other part of it you know so we're specifically talking about the utility part of it uh but there's also another side of it which is you know humans are status driven creatures generally uh we want to generally flex their status and get respect and so forth that's why people buy rolexes and lambos and stuff and now there's just like another type of thing to buy okay let's buy a board ape you know so in certain circles that's status yeah. so that's another part of it yeah so aside mm-hmm. from the status like if you just talk about utility connor there's definitely projects out there where uh, i think this guy iman gazi I, I don't know him but uh, i know he had some kind of launch where it would open you access to certain features or uh, you know uh, for example, his network of you know exclusive watch sellers. So if you're someone who's a watch collector and you want to buy a stainless steel Rolex or a stainless steel you know uh, Audemars Piguet, these are highly exclusive watches that are not always available in showrooms. And there's usually like a two to four year waiting list. But if you now own that NFT and you get access to watch dealers that can sell that watch and you get it for a cheap price. You've already made back the money that you spent on the NFT. Um, so, like access is another thing as well. I know that you know having the board ape aside from it being a status symbol, you'll still be in a group with Snoop Dogg and anyone else that you know Jimmy Kimmel that owns a board ape. Uh, you get invited uh, exclusively to events. So, in a way, you are also kind of like a mastermind buying access. Um, and who knows what the what the ROI on that is? For example, uh, Aries in the War Room, uh, which is Andrew Tate's uh, private mastermind group, they they always have uh, events, and you know, so far Aries met with some real estate moguls and some multi multi millionaires that you know have opened up ideas uh, for him. You know, from conversations we've had. Um, so it really does depend on like what do you truly value um, an NFT at? If you think this access could potentially have a greater ROI on me than five ETH over the next five, 10 years, then I would say that's a pretty valuable investment. It sounds like you could just do that without an NFT. You could be like, oh, I'm, I've had this community. You can meet these people, you know, jump on the Discord and you can pay and bid. And whoever, you know, I just want 10 people in there, the 10 highest bidders. Now you can be a part of the community. Yeah, so, no. Yeah. So I actually, let, let, let me actually uh, explain that. So obviously you could do high ticket. You could sell a high ticket yearly subscription or a high ticket once off. But there's something there that you cannot uh, gain extra money from as the project owner, and that is the royalties. So on OpenSea, you can have royalties of secondary sales. So let's imagine that you know you bought this NFT for five ETH. I'm the project owner, and there's a hundred of those. Every time they're bought and sold again, I could get up to ten percent of royalties from that. That's 0.5 ETH, and, and the more volume it's going to go, the more royalties I'm getting. So maybe that's one way. Um, maybe people are just jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's definitely projects out there that are like pure shit, pure rugs and scams. And you have to be very, very careful, uh, you know, vetting them. You always have to look at the utility. Um, but, you know, there's equally projects that are you know valuable, in my opinion. And, um, you know, they're fairly priced. They're not charging you a leg and an arm. They might charge you just like, you know, 0.07 or 0.5 ETH, which is nothing. Um, and, you know, in return, you get a utility, which, you know, that, that would be a fair price for. All right, just, just another point from there is um, I think we're looking at it too, um, too, like up close to us in a sense that, OK, there's this one specific case here. You buy this guy's NFT, you get access to this his events. OK, fair. That's just one case. Uh, the way I'm looking at it, I'm looking at far into the future, more so in the future. And if you really extrapolate it from there, it just comes back to what we said earlier. It's a decentralized way of having access to something because when it's centralized, there is um possibility of either altering or some form of you know corruption or nepotism or whatever because because humans are humans you know so that stuff does happen when it's decentralized and transparent that removes 
a lot of those potential issues, such as, you know, like I said, of corruption, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, if you really extrapolate it from there, like there's, there can be so many, uh, you know, use cases where you get a decentralized access to something that is non-alterable, that is transparent. And I think there's going to be so many applications to that. Like I said, I still like, you know, still think we're in the very caveman days of the, the uses, but there's going to be so many more, uh, like larger and grand scale uses for it. Well, thanks for that. That was fun having the the debate about NFTs and, and hearing about your guys' backstories. Where would you like me to point people to in terms of your personal profiles and your businesses? Yeah, I mean, if anyone uh, you know is out there having issues with their advertising, their ads, and they are interested in using whitelisted ad accounts to advertise with stability, uh, you can always book a call on our website, uh, which is orangetrail.io. And you know, we can't work with everyone. Full transparency, we have to you know take it case by case. So we'd have to see if you're eligible. But you're more than welcome to book a call with one of our account managers and we'd see if you'd be a fit. So that's orangetrail.io. And then our personal uh, Instagram profiles, um, Aeroslav, uh, Aries Aeroslav, so E-R-O-S-L-A-V. And I am Rohan, R underscore O-H-A-A-N. Uh, we're happy to connect with anyone you know, in the industry. Um, you will probably see a lot of memes on our stories as well. So that'll keep you engaged, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, happy to connect with anyone out there. Thanks so much, guys. That was, that was pretty fun. Cheers, yeah. man. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.